Hello, my name is Kennedy. And my name is Chance, and today we're going to be talking about... Wildlife conservation and climate change. Hello, and welcome to our podcast. And today we are going to be talking about two very important topics that not a lot of people know about. These two things are wildlife conservation and climate change. Chance and I live in Vermont, which I fear is a state that is quote-unquote out of it. What I mean by this is that the citizens of Vermont in general don't really know about wildlife conservation or climate change. I mean, sure, we have systems in place to help with these things, and people do help with them, such as recycling and composting, but the people don't know how it is they are helping the environment. So that's what we wish to do here with this podcast to inform people about how things are affecting our state and what some things are that we can do to help. However, in order for us to explain to the public what they can do, we had to get in touch with a professional. Uh, My name is Paul Hamelin. I'm a certified wildlife biologist with Vermont Fish and Wildlife Department. We decided to do an interview with Mr. Hamelin because of his vast knowledge on both wildlife conservation and climate change. He was able to give a very good insight into situations going on in Vermont specifically, based on the two topics we chose. Chance and I started to ask questions about wildlife conservation first, starting with population. I asked Paul why some of the endangered species populations in Vermont had declined. Some populations have decreased and some have not, so they're increased. So like you often find um, with wildlife populations is sort of like a simple way to think of it is there are winners and losers. And so whenever you change something in the environment, um, usually that benefits some species some way, and then it also impacts others in a negative way. So some decrease. Um, so, uh, examples of that are, um, if you do a lot of land clearing, so you cut a lot of forests and convert it to agriculture, like what was done at the turn of the century in the late 1800s, mm-hmm. um, Species like uh, moose and wolves and mountain lions um, that need forest, bears, fisher, um, they um, were basically wiped out from Vermont. And so, you know, they needed forest. But other species benefited greatly. So species like um, fox, um, even bobcat, which thrive in like more open areas and and brushy areas, um, they thrived. Um, So... It's not a, it's not as simple as just like all wildlife is decreasing or declining some some increase. As I listened to Mr. Hamlin's answer, I became more and more intrigued. I decided to take my previous question further and focus in on a specific animal. This animal is one that all the citizens of Vermont have seen decline drastically over the past decade. My question was, what are some of the problems that the moose population is facing today? Okay. So Vermont's uh, moose population, um, you know, was was very healthy and moose were very abundant in pre-settlement times. Most of the forest was cleared for agriculture and sheep farming. And then, uh, so moose were um, almost completely extirpated from Vermont. So um, extinct means the species has gone from the earth, like dinosaurs. Extirpated means it's gone from a regional area. So they were basically gone from Vermont. Um, and then when farms were abandoned after sheep farming wasn't very popular, 
um, in the early, late 1900s, late 1800s, and also people went west to farm. Um, they abandoned their farms and the forest grew back. And it took almost 100 years, so into the 1960s and 70s, um, finally the forest returned and there still were moose in Maine and they protected them from hunting, fortunately, where, where they weren't completely um, uh, extirpated from Maine. And moose slowly, gradually started coming back through New Hampshire into Vermont on their own. Um, the other thing that came back when the forest grew back, our beaver came back. And beaver and moose um, are very closely linked together. Moose um, feed a lot around beaver ponds and cool off in beaver ponds in the summer. We're at the very southern edge of the range of moose, and they get very hot in the summer. They're you know, cold climate animals that can live all the way up to the Arctic. Um, so when the, when the beaver came back and started building a lot of beaver dams and beaver ponds um, through the 1970s and 80s, the moose started really to thrive. Um, then the other thing that happened in the 1980s and 90s, once the trees were 100 years old, timber companies started harvesting trees again, and they cut a lot of forest in northeastern Vermont in particular, and um, created a lot of food for moose, and the moose population just thrived, and all the moose cows were having twins, were very healthy, um, they were having, and so your population grows very fast if every year or every other year you have two, 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 it's exponential growth. So moose were thriving through the 1990s and actually a little bit overabundant um, through the you know period 2000, 2010. And then um, partly due to that overabundance, uh, maybe um, a parasite that moose have on the southern edge of their range, um, a tick, it's actually called moose ticks. And it's particular to moose. It's not the same as you see on your dogs or, or things like that. Um, really exploded um, in the Northeast. And we think this is partly due to climate change also. And um, when these female ticks that are on the moose um, drop off to lay their eggs um, in the spring, if they land on the snow, they usually die and they don't get to reproduce and lay eggs. If they land on bare patches of ground, they, they um, live and they lay um, hundreds or thousands of eggs. So spring is coming earlier now. I mean, that's proven fact with data. It's almost two weeks earlier and the snow melts earlier. And it really benefits these ticks. When they drop off, they produce thousands and thousands more ticks. Moose are infested with these ticks um, sort of way out of balance from what's like a normal um, number. And one moose could have you know over 10,000 ticks on it. So each little tick um, takes out a little bit of blood, but altogether it adds up to quarts of blood and the moose are really um, malnourished through the end of the winter. And they're so weakened by the loss of blood and also... Um, they rub severely rub off their hair because the ticks are bothering them so much um, that they die of hyperthermia, basically of exposure um, in April and early May. So it's mainly the one-year-old moose. So the ones that um, were born in June, they go through the summer, then they go through their first winter with all these ticks that next spring, which would be just about a year old. They almost make it to June they die when it's cold and wet and rainy in April and May. They don't have enough hair, they're a mammal, and they need to stay warm. 
and they are malnourished and they're just you know no better off than you or I would be out there in a cold wet rain night after night and that's what happens and so right now we know that about 50% of the moose calves or the yearling moose are dying every year from that so that has caused a drastic decline in their population and it um, looks like they're just struggling along um, to, they might be able to just maintain a like a low level stable population at this point even without harvesting many moose or any moose um, the way conditions are right now hearing the answer to the question was heartbreaking learning that the yearling moose population only had a 50 percent chance survival rate made me sick finding out all of this information made me ask myself something. Should moose hunting become illegal so that the population could grow back? I asked Mr. Hamlin this question, and his response shocked me. Um, that's a good question, and it's not an unreasonable expectation at all to say, should, why should we hunt moose if moose are in low numbers and if they're struggling? Um, so in fact, um, the department had drastically reduced the number of moose hunting permits. Um, there were just a handful of permits last fall, about 12, and for bulls only, so no cows. And if you hunt bulls only, it really doesn't impact the population significantly because um, several, you know, several cows can be bred by one bull moose, so they're sort of like extra bull moose. Um, for this upcoming season, um, the proposal is, um, I believe, to have no moose hunting at all or just a very, very minimal. We actually have to, um, there, it's in law that, there's, that there be five permits for um, certain uh, groups um, like veterans and a few other um, groups like that. But I think actually in this upcoming season there may be a way to even um put a stay on that so that there might be no moose harvested in the 2019 season actually and so um just give the chance moose a little bit more chance to recover and build up their numbers finding out that the state of vermont is acknowledging the moose population problem and is taking action was heartwarming but I wanted you viewers to know what you could do to help the moose population yourselves. This is, of course, if you live in the Northeast Kingdom. I asked Mr. Hamlin what it is that we, the citizens of Vermont, could do to help the moose population survive. Okay, um, so if moose go into the winter in, with you know a good amount of weight and fat built up, then they have a much better chance to make it through the winter and make it all the way through to the other end, to the spring, till it starts to warm up. So um, in the summer, uh, they also browse twigs, um, but it's young, new, young growth that has more nutrition in it. It's not the hardened, you know, twigs that are basically like a pencil that you see in the wintertime. It's the new, young growth of the little young leaves. So um, actually timber harvesting in large areas, making clear cuts of, you know, everything from two to five acre timber harvest produces a lot of food for moose. Um, the word moose 
means twig eater. That's their name. It's an Algonquin word. The Native Americans called them twig eaters, and so that's what moose means, and they eat twigs all year round. Um, so basically providing just good, abundant amount of food um, and you know space to roam. They can't thrive in a lot of development, obviously, but at least in northeastern Vermont, that's not much of an issue. It's not all paved in parking lots, and so as long as we maintain it that way, um, we, sh- we should always have some moose. Um, that's, that's the main thing, is just make sure that they have good habitat. It is true that the moose population is decreasing due to the severe increase of ticks, but it is the change in climate that is allowing the tick population to boom. This next segment in the podcast is on climate change and will be taken over by chance. I chose the topic of climate change because it affects everything. This mostly includes wildlife. I started to wonder if climate change was predictable so I could go and help the areas that did have a problem with climate change in the nature. Is uh, climate change predictable? Uh, there, There is an awful lot of climate science Um, underway right now and um, we have really good data um, for especially for the last 50 years so there are many models um, all over the world that scientists are using to try to make predictions on what the climate um, will do Uh, it's it's never this has never been done before and it's sort of an uncontrolled experiment that you know we're just becoming aware of all these you know greenhouse gases and things um going into the atmosphere um and we we can't actually predict the rate um that we're going to continue to put gases into the atmosphere so if some countries um develop at a very high rate and continue to burn coal or um, oil. Um, Some of the more populous countries, especially like China and India, they're still poised to do a lot of development. And if they um, continue on that path, they could produce a lot of greenhouse gas. And then so you end up with the, the high end of the predictions. So then they predict, oh, you know, 50 years from now or 100 years from now, the temperature, you know, globally could raise about 10 degrees more in the summer. So they'll have like a high end, but then they'll also predict sort of a low end. And they'll say, oh, but everybody's trying to cut their greenhouse gases and everyone's trying to use more electric vehicles and use solar and use wind farms. If everybody cooperates and is successful in doing that, Mm -hmm. then we may end up with only, you know, a five degree increase. So there they think they can predict climate change within a range, but they sort of have like, the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. And then it could be anywhere in between there, actually. So um, the answer is, um, yes, it is predictable, you know, to a certain extent, but nobody can put their finger right on it. Not many people know much about climate change and how it affects uh, us as well as our wildlife and habitats. People need to be more educated on climate change. And the real question is, how do we uh, talk about climate change so people would listen? Okay, well, that's a really difficult question. I think if you had the answer to that, you would you would uh, be doing very well right now. Um, <laughs> you probably you probably be elected to some office for sure. Yeah, um, right. 
you know, with human nature, you know, there's always, there's um, a small percentage of the population that are always, you know, eager to do the right thing and really um, take up causes and things. And then there's a small percentage of the population on the other end who won't change their behavior no matter what the rules are and what the Mm -hmm. penalty is, they won't. Then there's a a huge amount of people in the middle that um, will sort of cooperate and can be swayed one way or the other um, based on um, the information that you present to them. Uh, It's very difficult to... um, just you know try to give people a warning and say this is going to happen or this is going to happen um until people actually sort of see some evidence they sort of want to you know they sort of want to say like prove it um they're not convinced and slowly more and more people are starting to be convinced maybe by things like the severe weather events that Mm -hmm. we're starting to have like we know we're having weather events much more severe fires out west mm-hmm. in California because it's not just global warming now it's climate change and the climate change is some places are going to be drier some places mm-hmm. are going to be wetter and it's all because there's more energy in the atmosphere yeah. um and you know some people are getting much more severe you know tornadoes and much more destructive and it and the season is starting earlier mm-hmm. and ending later. Like it used to be definitely, oh, it doesn't start until, you know, mid-June and it ends by November. And now mm-hmm. we're starting to have tornadoes all the way into November or um, hurricanes. The hurricane yeah, season yeah. is changing. And when when people start to see evidence for themselves, then they become convinced. But it's a slow process because it has to happen like over decades. You don't just mm-hmm. in one year all of a sudden change your mind and and it's a generational thing actually but the problem is we don't have too many generations like we know that this has been going on for about 100 years that we burn fossil fuels Mm -hmm. probably only have you know we have to to make some drastic changes in the next 50 years because the the Mm -hmm. amount of greenhouse gases is sort of reaching a critical point didn't really answer your question very well as far how to change people's minds i mean you can do marketing and and studies and surveys and present them with data um in today's world there's some people just don't even believe in data like there's even a an effort to try to like um discredit science and just you know say oh well you know that's fake you know fake news or fake science and there's such a disinformation uh culture now that people are skeptical of everything Often people get confused when talking about global warming and climate change. I myself have gotten confused at times. I began wondering whether or not climate change and global warming are the same thing. Are they similar or are they two totally different things? In the 90s, um, they called what is happening um, to the climate global warming because that was the first indication of what was happening was scientists observed that average temperatures worldwide were warming up and that was the the data was you know indisputable about that and so and they said oh the globe's getting warmer but now they realize it's more complicated than that as the the global temperature warms meaning even the oceans and that's what drives a lot of this is as the oceans get a little bit warmer and the ocean currents get a little bit warmer 
ocean currents circulate all around the globe and they transfer their energy. So things like the Gulf Stream that goes around from the Gulf of Mexico along the coast of Florida and all the way up through the Northeast brings warm water from down near the Gulf of Mexico all the way up off the coast of Maine mm-hmm. in the summertime. Um, and that affects all of the weather and weather is short-term events, you know, the, what happens in the atmosphere over a few days or weeks or months. Climate is what happens over long term, over mm-hmm. over decades and centuries and, and thousands of years. Um, they realize that it's not just getting warmer everywhere, but um, some places are getting much wetter and some places are getting much drier. And some places are even severely colder because other parts of the earth are much warmer. So as you get more energy in the atmosphere from these currents and also just from the air temperature changing and as the air temperature uh, the air currents also circulate around the earth you'll get pockets of energy and so pockets of really warm air it basically is energy and that causes whatever happens there like hurricanes or whatever but wherever you have an extreme on one end of the globe you can have you often have an extreme on the other end of the globe which could be extremely cold and Mm -hmm. that's what makes people non-believers in climate change is they'll be oh well you know in europe right now it's you know 20 degrees below average and they're having snow you know in france where they never usually have snow and everything like that and that is why we call it climate change is because everything is sort of out of the balance that it's been for thousands and thousands of years um you know since since the last ice age basically um 10,000 years ago everything's sort of in balance and now things are much out of balance. So what started out as being called um, global warming is now being called climate change because it's more complicated than just warming up. Mm-hmm. Climate change is happening so rapidly around us. It is constantly changing. So with that, it is hard to think of a way to stop or even slow down climate change. Is there a way we can all work together to slow down how fast climate change is happening? Well, the number one thing that all scientists agree on is to curb the emission of the gases that cause it, mainly carbon uh, dioxide, um, the greenhouse gases. Um, that, and we are, the carbon dioxide is being released into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels that have been um, in the Earth's crust for, you know, millions of years, basically, from, you know, primeval jungles from another time when the Earth was had a much warmer climate and all of the Earth um, was warm and probably ice-free, and that was when the dinosaurs were, reptiles were able to cover the Earth because it was all a very warm, tropical-type climate. That's when all that carbon and carbon dioxide was on the surface of the earth and then over time millions and millions of years um as those you know forests became compressed into the earth's crust that's what formed coal and oil and so that's why we call them fossil fuels and basically they were created during you know the age of the dinosaurs they've been locked into the earth's crust for millions of years now we're drilling down and extracting it and bringing it up to the surface and burning it and releasing it all into the atmosphere again. So we're creating those conditions, the conditions that the dinosaurs thrived in, which was warm, 
tropical conditions. So if we continue to keep mining these fuels, oil and coal, and burning them and releasing the carbon in it, that will continue to, to allow the climate to change because that's what allows um, the atmosphere to trap more of the sun's energy and allows the atmosphere to warm up. Um, it's just, that's physics. It's indisputable yeah. science. So we have to curb. And so how do we do that? Luckily, um, plants take carbon out of the air. They take carbon dioxide um, mm-hmm. that we breathe out of the air. Um, that's what they breathe in. And, that, and then they lock it up in the form of wood and plant tissue. And that's how it all got into the ground to begin with, was that's what formed the coal, is all those plants decayed and layers and layers upon layers formed um, oh, in the yeah. soil. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to stop burning what we are now, slow it way down by um, using solar energy and hydro and um, wind and other forms of energy um, instead of fossil fuel energy. And we have to allow the forests to uh, take continue taking carbon out. So we need to reforest as many as many places yeah, as we yeah. can. A lot of people have been thinking of ways to help end climate change, whether that be using electric cars or installing solar panels. But the p- big question is, are we trying to stop this when we no longer able to? Is it too late for us? to stop or at least slow down climate change? Today be enough to forestall the direct impact of climate change or is it too late? But that is the the million dollar question, isn't it? Uh, The scientists will tell us, you know, these different scenarios and if the whole world reduces, you know, their carbon production by X amount, you know, over the next 50 years, then we'll end up with this amount of warming. And if we don't, and we continue to just grow and burn fossil fuels, you know, the populations grow and cities grow and we burn fossil fuels at the rate we are, we'll end up with this amount of warming, which is, you know, three times more. So they're saying, you know, we may, or two times more, we may increase temperature by five degrees or we may increase the average temperature by 10 degrees. It's inevitable, they all agree the temperature is going to continue to increase over the next 50 years. It's going to get warmer and there's going to be more energy in the atmosphere and the climate's going to change. It's just a matter of how much. Um, no one knows if everyone will cooperate. There, th- all kinds of things happen in the world, political things, economic things, in wars, you know, hopefully not. But those all have a tremendous impact on people's consumption of these fuels. When Chance and I chose these topics, we had a lot of questions. But this experience also gave us the tools to fix those problems. Learning how to help not only wildlife conservation, but climate change as well, made us understand the changes that we needed to do in our lives. This includes not only all of the citizens in Vermont, but also the whole Northeast Kingdom. This experience allows us to teach you the listener of this podcast, how to make a difference, whether that in your everyday life or something that you didn't even realize was there. So with these last final words of this podcast, we say to you, go make a difference. Go out and help. And go change the world. Mm